Support for this podcast comes from you and Yankwich & Associates, since 1997 working to provide expert, responsive service in intellectual property law to biotech, biopharmaceutical, and biochemical companies worldwide. More information at yankwich.com. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. It's a question that everyone asks at some point when they're growing up. Where do babies come from? And we all kind of know the answer, at least as far as we remember the details from biology class. But for thousands of years, ordinary people, scientists, they had no idea where babies came from. I mean, they knew that people had sex. And they knew that sometimes babies resulted from that. But how? They couldn't really say. People like Isaac Newton and Leonardo da Vinci, who changed science, who were great thinkers, they would have been shocked by what an elementary school kid in 2017 could tell them about where babies come from. Edward Dalnick is author of the new book, The Seeds of Life, which charts this centuries-long quest to understand how new people are made and why it took us so long to figure it out. And we should say... There will be some discussion of sex here, which is probably not too surprising to you. Edward, welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. So I mentioned uh, Leonardo da Vinci, who drew these very detailed pictures of people having sex, of a woman's womb. And he was obviously very interested in what was going on, how this happened. Can you give me a sense of like, in the 1400s, what was he getting right and what was he getting wrong? Well, um, both, in, in both categories. He was an astonishing genius. It's around 1500 when he gets fascinated with the human body. Um, he's doing these studies of anatomy at the same time as he's painting the Mona Lisa. Um, to study bodies in those days, you first had to get a body, and that wasn't easy. You had to de- make a deal with, uh, with a hangman to slip mm. you a corpse or, or something like this. So it's gruesome work, and you're, you're working away in the dark and the cold because you don't want to be doing this uh, in, in summer's heat. Right. And, and Leonardo's a squeamish fellow besides, so he's cutting these bodies open, uh, trying to work up his nerve and seeing what he can find. Um, and some of what he sees uh, makes sense to him, and some of his drawings uh, just just show things that that just weren't so. When he uh, he did make a famous cutaway drawing of a man and woman having sex, so this is from his imagination because you would have needed uh, first of all a living couple, and then some kind of MRI X-ray scan or something. Or right? Something. He's, <laughs> right. He, he's he's drawing like their internal organs while this is happening. Right. So yeah, he couldn't have seen it. No, he didn't see it, but it shows what he thought you would see. Mm-hmm. And what he thought you would see includes the various bits that we know, but also some strange things that aren't there. There was a tube in the man, he thought, that ran down your spinal column. It carried semen from the brain uh, down to the man's penis. This tube doesn't exist. And in women, uh, Leonardo didn't draw ovaries. He didn't know there were such things. Mm. Um, But on the other hand, he did put in some things that aren't there. He had uh, (laughs) an imaginary tube for women, too. This one went from uterus to breasts um, because there was a half-baked or not even half theory about menstrual blood was somehow converted to mother's milk Mm. and it would pass through through this passageway is how it happened. Well, it's interesting about the issue of um, the mother's milk and menstruation because 
in some ways, people were trying to find explanations for things they knew to be true. Like, for example, you know, um, when women are nursing, they don't get their period, but nobody understood how that was happening. So, as you said, there was this thought of, like, maybe blood is becoming milk. Is that Could that be happening? One of the things to bear in mind is that these are all smart people right. trying to figure out what's genuinely a mystery. Uh, now that we know the answer, uh, it's easy for us to say, oh, of course. But if, if you try to imagine yourself back to not knowing, mm-hmm. I mean, it really is quite strange that from a bit of huffing and puffing several months ago, there comes to be <laughs> a new human being in the world. It's, we all know it happens, but it is kind of an amazing thing. Right. Okay, so let's fast forward to the 1600s. There's a guy named William Harvey, who you write about. He was very friendly uh, with the English king, Charles I, um, and he was super fascinated with this question of where babies come from. Like, how does this happen? He investigated extensively. So, you know, bring me up to the 1600s here. What did he think, and how did he go about trying to figure this out? So Harvey's a great hero in the history of medicine and in his own mind as well. He's he's a vain (laughs) fellow. Um, It's Harvey who's figured out that the heart is a pump, a a giant advance in medicine. And now he's on to the next greatest thing. He's going to be the one who explains uh, conception and development, how babies come to be, or at least this is his plan. But you can't study human beings directly, and so he decides he will look at animals. And because he's pals with the king, as you say, and the king is a big hunter, there are all sorts of deer around to be looked at. So the king and uh, Harvey go out one day. They go out in uh, mating season for deer. They wait for deer to mate. Now uh, Harvey rushes over, and they choose a deer that they will sacrifice and cut her open, and they'll look in her womb, and they'll see, Harvey believes, some glistening embryo that he'll flick out into the sunlight, and this will be the first step in, in solving this mystery. And he cuts the deer open, and then steam rises into the cold air, and the king crowds round, and the king's deer men peek over over Harvey's shoulders to see what's going on. And they look and they look, but they don't see anything Right to their astonishment. They can't figure it out. That on the one hand, there has to be something tangible there, because there will soon be a new deer born. But on the other hand, there's nothing, and they can't sort out that mystery. It's so interesting that, like, the king isn't on this. That the king is also, you know, I don't know if he was normally into science, but he's also like, yeah, what's going on here? How does the scientific process work? And he is actually out on these hunts trying to figure it out. Well, well, Charles was was a smart and curious fellow, but this was not an abstract question like what are the orbits of planets. Mm-hmm. This was a question that nearly everyone had wondered about at some time or other. Where does new life come from? How does it come to be? There must have been things, though, that were confusing. Like, for example, why did some people have sex but not have children? Or why did some people have sex and have twins? Like, how how did things happen? I mean, I know what you're saying, like, they knew in general about a sort of general rule. But there were things that didn't fit that rule that must have confused people. They confused people like mad. And what you would do is make up some kind of, of uh, folklore explanation of it. So... 
to do with fertility and infertility, say, there was every kind of theory that you would have babies if you went to bed at the time of a full moon or mm. a new moon mm. or early in the day or late in the day mm. or facing to the north mm. or while a breeze blew in the scent of <laughs> lavender or if you had eaten some particular food mm -hmm. or maybe not even a food. Uh, in Italy, they thought if you ate rose petals, uh, that was a, a good way to, to get pregnant. Hmm. I can't remember. It was either red roses brought boys and white brought girls or vice versa. Hmm. But but all kinds of theories like this, people doing their best to come up with, with the patterns to explain these, these odd features of right. everyday life. Right. And twins, did people have thoughts on where twins came from? Twins were a huge mystery, and once again, there was there was every kind of theory. One was that, uh, well, this this is uh, lustful couples who have gone to bed twice uh, right away, <laughs> or a particularly potent male. Every, every kind of guesswork. And I should say, because it's an important part of this story, that in the 1600s, 1700s, and all the millennia before that, virtually every scientist asking about babies in life was male. And mm. not only male, but a male who took for granted that men were pretty great <laughs> and women weren't up to much. And so when you were trying to solve this particular mystery, to write off half the population was a formula for trouble. So when you say they assumed men were pretty great, did that say to them that basically um, the, the baby-making process was basically about men? Do you know what I mean? The woman was carrying it, but... That was just like, you know, a technicality. What, what these male scientists said explicitly was that if you were to look at any creative product whatsoever, a poem or a house or a tool or, or a piece of pottery, that was made by some male artist. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was the way the world worked. Mm -hmm. Now, when you looked at the greatest and most elaborate creation of all, a new human being, it stood to reason they all insisted, that that too would right. be the creation of a male. Right, right. And the woman's role in this uh, would be, as you say, to, to nurture that, mm -hmm. that seed that the, that the male had, had created and mm -hmm. planted. Mm -hmm. uh, you have this great uh, line in the book about, I mean, in the 1600s, 1700s, you really got a scientific revolution underway. And people are learning all this stuff about physics, about astronomy, about calculus. And then you have this great quote, the bold men of science raced off to take on the mystery of life and promptly face-planted. <laughs> Did people who thought, well, we're unlocking the mysteries of the universe, surely we can figure this out. It's all around us. You know, did they think this is totally doable? That, that's exactly how it went. And that's what got me into this book, in fact. I had written earlier about Isaac Newton and Galileo and people like this. And they had solved all these cosmic mysteries mm -hmm. about comets and suns and planets. And those are, are remote things and ones you can't touch because they're so far off. And now they thought they would turn their attention to bugs and babies and plants and butterflies. And this would be easy. Oh, right. They were, they right. were going to rack up one more big triumph just in the same line that they'd already done. Right. And they were astonished to find that, that planets were easy and plants were hard. They, they had no idea it would be that way. Right. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Edward Dalnick, author of the book The Seeds of Life, about how we finally came to understand where babies come from. It may have been not super hard. Um, you know, I, I don't want to characterize it, but it, it was obviously doable to make advances in calculus and physics and astronomy and so on. But a lot of those things did not come without the pushback of the church and religious authorities. And I just wonder... 
where does religion factor into this whole question that scientists had been pursuing for hundreds of years of where babies came from? Religion played a giant part in this story. Um, it played a big part in the in the astronomy and physics story too. Uh, we know from Galileo, but their religion mostly helped actually because the scientists all believed that God was a mathematician, and it turned out, for reasons nobody understands quite to this day that the inanimate world really does follow mathematical laws. The mm. comets do trace perfect ellipses, and gravity does follow an equation that you can write down mm. in a few lines. But now when it came to biology, they had this same belief that everything uh, was designed by God, the creator. And now it, when they turned to life, that made for all kinds of trouble. Mm. For one thing, God was not only the creator, all these scientists believed, but he was the only creator. And so that simple observation made for giant trouble, because if God was the only creator, how could it be that ordinary men and women were creating hmm. life? That was God's work. How could that be? And to come up with an answer to that question, they invented what was taken to be the deepest wisdom for centuries, but to us sounds like the most outlandish answer possible. What they said is, well, God is the only creator. It's not when, when a man and woman today think they're creating life, they're kidding themselves. They're really not. What happened was God created all life at the beginning with Adam and Eve, and he, then he put all the people who would ever live inside Adam or inside Eve. There huh. was a big fight Just little, little mini versions of them. Little mini versions like Russian dolls. And within each mini <laughs> me was, an, was a minier one and yeah, a minier one. Yeah. Everybody who had ever lived all in Adam or in Eve. And it was a big battle. They called themselves Ovis and Spermis. Who, who, was it Adam <laughs> or was it Eve who had all those Russian dolls? But that's how they wriggled out of this um, God, the only creator business. And for them, this was an absolutely urgent question. It wasn't a silly thing or a spinoff. This was the first thing you had to answer. Who's doing the creating here? Okay, so you know we've been through, I mean, thousands of years of human history. People have not answered this. When would you say the really big breakthroughs started coming? Well, it takes until the late 1800s uh, for this story to be resolved. One of the first big breakthroughs was earlier than that. Uh, Leeuwenhoek, his name is a Dutchman, looks through a microscope, the first microscope. He's the first to have seen these new micro worlds, and he looks through at, at drops of pond water and rainwater and blood and scrapings from his teeth, everything you can think of, and he sees all these creatures no one has ever suspected. Yeah, they're not what people thought they were, as simple as people thought they were, like pond water or whatever. People had thought that water would be just water right, because... Right. With this notion of, of God, the perfect creator, having made everything in the world, why would God have bothered to create things that people can't see? Mm -hmm. Because people are the point of it all. Mm -hmm. that, that was the notion. At any rate, Leeuwenhoek invents the microscope. He's thrilled with it. He's looking at everything. He goes to bed with his wife one night. He jumps up. Uh, he tells us proudly. He goes running over <laughs> to his microscope, holding this goopy semen sample. He looks at it under the microscope. Uh, we don't know what Mrs. Lewinhoek is saying uh, <laughs> uh, at this time. He looks through uh, his microscope at the semen, and there he sees what no one has ever seen before, these little swimming tadpole -y creatures. Mm. And now he's thrilled because people and he have been trying to figure out where new life comes from, where babies come from. And now to see these vigorous swimming things, they certainly seem alive. It seems like a giant clue. This is around 1700, and he's almost got it. And then he looks some more, and he thinks some more, and he says, 
You know, on second thought, that can't be right, because whenever I look at anything at pond water, at rainwater, I always see lots of little things swimming around in it. So these things that a minute ago I was saying must have to do with life, uh, I, I must have had it wrong. Actually, they must be just another kind of parasite, hmm. although this one has chosen a peculiar place to live. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it sounds like it, much in the way that astronomy, you know, depended on the tools of astronomy— that, you know, until you had microscopes, until you had certain things that allowed you to see very, very small, you know, eggs and sperm and stuff, it, it was hard to imagine that those things had inside them what they do have inside them. New tools are, are a giant part of the story. Uh, the microscope coming along is really, really important. This is a story that hinges on sperm and egg. Uh, an egg is just at the limit of what you could see with your naked eye if you were had good fortune. It's about the size of the dot over a typed letter I. Hmm. But, but it's, it's the biggest cell in the body. But the sperm is the smallest cell in the hmm. body. So, so the ratio in weight of an egg to a sperm cell that fertilizes it is a million to one. Wow. It's the difference between wow. a, a Thanksgiving turkey and a housefly. So it's a, no wonder that they were so hard to find. So... Who then was the first person who really knew? Because you said Lewinhoek looked and he thought, maybe sperm are part of life. Oh, no, maybe they're not. So who was the first person who realized, no, a sperm meets an egg and this is the beginning and it implants and, you know, like had the first sense of this is what really definitively happens and they were right about it. So that comes late. This is 1875. There's a... a grouchy German scientist that no one has ever heard of named uh, Oscar Hartwig, who was working in a, uh, in a lab in, in Naples, Italy. Uh, they were studying sea urchins, uh, not because of any particular fascination with sea urchins, but sea urchins happen to have big eggs and they're easy to gather and they're transparent. You can see inside them, like looking at a construction site uh, through a peephole. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you have experimental subjects at the end of the day. They're also delicious. Uh, this, this was also... <laughs> that Just also a side a benefit, yeah. <laughs> but, but all the scientists in the lab had discovered that side benefit. At any rate, Hartwig one day is looking through his microscope at one of these transparent sea urchin eggs, and he pushes a sea urchin sperm cell near it, and now the nucleus of that uh, sperm cell makes its way somehow inside the, the egg, and one nucleus swims towards the other, Hartwick is watching this, and then they meet, and he's he's the first one to have ever seen that, huh. and he catches on now that ah, it's not that the sperm cell is is a parasite or or something like that. It, it's it's part of or, mm -hmm. or the the precursor of what's going to be a new organism. That's what's going on. And when he told people, did scientists immediately believe him? Um, did the general public immediately uh, immediately believe him? I just wonder. Like, how much resistance there was amongst any community? Well, there, there was some resistance, but this was an experiment that could be done, uh, could be repeated. You could mm -hmm. watch it, and if you, if you kept your eyes on it, you could see these cells, and mm -hmm. the word cell was new. You could see them divide. One of the great mysteries at this time was, on the one hand, everything in the world is made out of just stuff. Coffee cups, and you, and me, and dogs, and cats. They're mm -hmm. all made of, of bits of... of pieces of, of things. But on the other hand, some of those things, like the dogs and cats, run around and bark. And, and so the question was, is it just stuff or do you have to add some magical ingredient that springs the stuff 
to life. What's right. the difference between a coffee cup and a baby? Yeah. Um, and now with this Hartwig, with this fellow looking through the microscope, it seemed that if you had regular stuff, but in a particular arrangement, then that's what life was. It was a complex arrangement of the same old stuff. It wasn't that you needed magical building blocks. Do you think that this discovery has anything to teach scientists now who are still trying to figure out certain kinds of mysteries about the universe? Is there anything to learn from literally thousands of years spent trying to figure out where babies came from? Well, there's a lot to learn. Um, one thing to learn is that um, we, we look back on our forebears and we say, uh, how silly of them, taking ourselves as, as the end of the line right, of progress. Right, right. We, we always think, each generation thinks that the escalator comes to our floor, and there it stops. <laughs> That's right. But, but That's, we're, we've achieved perfection now. <laughs> but we're guaranteed that things that some things, we don't know which, um, and that's the beauty of it, we're guaranteed that future generations will look back on us and say how silly of them. Mm-hmm. And one likely example, you think, is, is, uh, is consciousness, ideas. We don't understand now where ideas come from, where do hopes and dreams come from. We know that there's that the brain is a physical thing, and somehow that physical thing gives rise to our hopes and our ambitions, mm-hmm. but we don't know how to bridge the gap. How does it happen? And, and our forebears in this baby story understood that you start with men and women and, and tissues and fluids, and somehow you, you end up with life, but they couldn't figure out how does that happen? How mm-hmm. does it come to be? Mm-hmm. And perhaps there's some notion akin to player pianos, some analogy, some some model that, that we're not capable of, of seeing right. yet right. that will resolve this. And maybe in the future, uh, 10-year-olds will know where right. ideas come from. <laughs> right, right. Edward Dolnick is the author most recently of the book, The Seeds of Life. Edward, thank you so much for being here. Well, my pleasure. Thanks very much. We've got more on the search for where babies come from. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. A while back, there was a bridge that changed the world. It was between North and South America, built about three million years ago, and the architect was nature. For the first time, these two continents touched. The great American interchange is how it's sometimes grandly titled. Biologist Chris Thomas says that when that connection was made, everything that had once been true about the natural way of the world, at least in this neck of the woods, it changed. Well, so there's a bunch of large mammals in North America that are feeding in a relatively dry continent, an open continent. And they moved down into South America and displaced a lot of the native species that used to exist there. Although when they the diversity still increased because although lots died out, there were more arrivals than there were things that died out. Meanwhile, giant ground sloths and armadillos and so on came in the opposite direction. Three million years later, nature is changing in a different but also profound way. And Thomas, who's a professor at the University of York in the UK, makes a provocative argument. 
for all the species that we're losing, there are winners. And on a warmer planet, exactly who will win may surprise us. Thomas is the author of the new book, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. And he admits that thinking about today's biological winners did not come easy to him, at least at first. Because I was brought up very much on everything's declining, everything's sort of going to pot. What are we going to do to stop this? And and almost like the whole conservation movement's been about trying to reduce the rate of decline rather right. than trying to generate positive trends. But over many years as a biologist, what I've noticed is that a high proportion of all of the butterflies and sometimes birds that I've been studying have somehow managed to adjust to the new world. And I started to wonder, well, Maybe this isn't just a sort of fluke of the things that I have ended up studying. Maybe this is a more general phenomenon. And then in the literature, we're starting to get increasing the scientific publications. We're starting to see a lot more studies that are suggesting that it isn't just a single unitary story of decline. Yes, lots and lots of things are declining and we might want to do something about this, but there are also lots of things that are increasing. And Mm. so there isn't this sort of inexorable certain degradation. Well, and one of the points you make is that 50 or 100 years ago, or maybe 200 years ago, is the point, you know, to which we may want to return things. But for thousands of years, things have been getting mixed up in what you might call completely unnatural ways, where you know, species from one part of the world were coming to another part. Do you want to talk about that? Like something that happened hundreds Mm. of years ago. Yeah, and to some extent, the whole book can be summarized by the fact that I dug a hole in my garden. And the deeper I got, (laughs) the, the deeper I got, the further I got back in history. And at the bottom of my hole, in fact, was an ice age, the deposits, the clay at the bottom of an ice age lake, um, Mm. a meter and a bit down. And then there was on top of that, there was a bunch of sand, which was actually an ancient sand dune, which had mammoths and woolly rhinoceros running over it. And then there was a forest and then there were pastures. And now there are new species coming in with climate change. So the challenge is that which species are present at any particular location. So, So if you like, on any frame of the world on a particular moment, it looks one way but it changes through time. And that isn't a threat to the biological diversity of the planet. It's actually how the biological diversity works and survives through periods of environmental change. It's always been this way. They move to where conditions are now suitable for them and they die out in places where that's no longer possible. And as humans now change the environment right across the planet, the same thing is happening. There's lots and lots of species shifting into new areas, into our gardens, into our suburban parks, into our farmland, into our partly disturbed forests, and throughout the world wherever we change the climate. This is all part of the biological response to humanity and the absolutely certain perturbation that we're causing in the planet. But trying to resist these changes as somehow deviation from how the planet should be doesn't sit with the fact that every ecological evolutionary process we know about is to do with the dynamics of birth and death and movement. In other words, the dynamics of change. Do we have yet a sense of whether climate change is thinning the ranks of these species, or is it producing more species? What is climate change doing? 
So climate change as a driver is undoubtedly going to reduce the number of species on the planet. And that's because there's lots of animals and plants, uh, like some frogs that used to live at the top of Monteverdi in Costa Rica, which got hit by a combination of disease and a warming climate and El mm. Nino current. And so these very localized species can get knocked out by a single extreme climatic event. Mm. And most of the predictions are suggesting that for the sort of climate change that we uh, are on heading for, well, perhaps of, again, an order of magnitude thing that of the order of perhaps 10 percent of species might be threatened with extinction hmm. as a consequence of the climate change. They're mostly going to be these quite localized species. Now, that's a really serious thing. And um, we should try and slow down the rate of climate change as fast as we possibly can as a global community. However, the silver lining, as it were, is that the warmest and wettest parts of our planet actually have the highest diversity. And of course, the climate's getting a bit warmer on average. Hmm. And, but, and it's actually getting a little bit, although we're getting some big droughts, it's also getting slightly moister on average. And that's hmm. simply a bit of physics that when the earth is warmer, more water evaporates from the ocean. So more, more goes up, more comes down. Hmm. So the land gets a little bit damper. So on average, you expect this to slightly increase the diversity per square mile or whatever of the land. And there's some indication, at least at the higher latitudes um, in the sort of far north of North America and Europe, that this is indeed happening, that local diversity is actually going up a bit because of the warming. More species are arriving than disappearing. Are there species that you've been really impressed with how they've adjusted to, I don't know, people you know, cutting their forests or things getting hotter or the world getting more urban, like things you would think not good for animals, but some animals are doing great. Well, lots of animals are doing great. It's quite remarkable, actually. But if we keep on the climate change angle for a minute, I'm lucky I have a, a couple of small meadows and I have a butterfly species that lives in that meadow that only arrived a few years ago and it spread northwards by nearly 200 miles hmm. and it's done so by changing its diet so it now feeds on a species of plant that's really quite common in the disturbed British countryside and so it's moved away from its historic habitat and has been able to expand its distribution very quickly indeed and in fact if you look around you anywhere that you are you'll see that the species that you've got in front of you, the trees, the birds and so on, they've come from all over the world often. And these are great success stories. You know, you've got sparrows around you that started off in a small area of Asia and are hmm. now one of the world's most widespread species. And it's, we kind of somehow resent them and don't like them necessarily because <laughs> we sort of, you know, we, we like a plucky loser, but... but, but How but about honestly, a plucky winner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, the sparrow might just be that. <laughs> Do you worry that um, the things that we are doing could potentially sow the seeds for long-term losing, you know, by humans? That that humans are changing things, but not necessarily for the long-term, for their own good, you know, to continue. Yeah, that's a really good point. And quite a number of biologists have thought about this, that there may be a sort of time delay between when we do things and set things and train and when all of the consequences are felt. And undoubtedly, there are species that have been 
restricted to small parts of the planet that might be going to die out in the long run, even if we do nothing else bad to them. On the other hand, we do know that you know, all around us we have species living in all of our farmland, our urban areas and so on, which come from various parts of the world right. and add to that local diversity. It is equally valid to suggest that there may be a big colonisation lag. In other words, we've changed the world, but all the species that are eventually going to live in this new world haven't yet got to the places where they're going to be able to thrive. Hmm. So there could be very large potential positive gains as well as future negative ones. So how do you think we should think about conservation and conserving our environment if, as you say, we've been in flux for millions of years, so it's hard to know exactly maybe what to conserve or what, you know, date we want things to be like, like 1960, like 1860, like 1760 and so on? Well, uh, as I said, ecology and evolution are about change. And uh, we know the history of the last uh, few hundred years to thousands of years of human impact. And then we go back over the last million years. It's been a, just an ongoing story of change. So keeping things as they are is clearly not the option. And if we try to do so, eventually, uh, whether it's um, a few years, a few decades or a few centuries from now or even a few millennia, we will have failed. And then we ask, well, why were we putting all of this effort in in the first instance? So what I think is particularly important is, funnily enough, it's almost like an old fashioned approach to conservation is that I'm suggesting that we need to turn our attention to the species that are threatened and mm -hmm. try and save at a global level as many of those as is possible. Not to keep the world as it is now, but because as having as many species of different types on the planet as possible effectively provides the biological system with the flexibility to respond to whatever it is that we do next to the mm. planet. And we have no idea what that's going to be. And some of those things are going to turn out to be useful to us. And we don't know which they're going to be at the moment. So it does make sense to try to preserve pandas in Asia it does or zebras in Africa or whatever. It does indeed. There may be cases you say, well, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. I'm taking on a forever challenge. It ain't going to work. OK, maybe I should give up on mm -hmm. this mm -hmm. one. But that should only be after a period of um, considered reflection and thought that this is the only realistic option. And because we're forever um, developing new biological techniques, for example, in genetic modification or whatever, it's entirely feasible that we may be able to solve in the future some challenges that we can't. And so maybe hanging on to things for a bit because we might be able to have a long-term solution in future could be a decent strategy. Do you feel like colleagues uh, have responded or, or the public has responded to your work in a positive way? Have they taken it as, in some ways, a provocative argument, which is like, let's look at the other side of, as you said, where that we're heading downwards all the time in an inevitable spiral to the bottom? I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Some people see me as trying to undermine the story of biological loss, but I'm not saying that there's no biological loss at all. I'm just saying there's biological gains as well. And it's a 
as legitimate to think about those gains as it is the losses. And when it comes to conservation, then for every time we're thinking about how do I stop a loss, you could also turn to the side and think, are there any potential additional gains I could achieve here as well? And it's an as well strategy rather than an instead. Chris Thomas is an ecologist at the University of York. He's the author of the book, Inheritors of the Earth, How Nature is Thriving in an Age of Extinction. Chris, thank you so much. Thank you very much indeed. for an expensive house, a very expensive house, where would you look? So it depends on where you are. But if you're in New York, you might want to try the streets that ring Central Park. If you're in Chicago, you could try Lakeshore Drive, which is right next to Lake Michigan. You could try the leafy sections of Beverly Hills, the beaches of Malibu. What all those places, places where you can easily find homes that top 5 or $10 million, what they all have in common is that they're close to nature even if they're in these huge urban areas. But what's the draw? Why is it so desirable to be right next to natural environments, especially if those environments are perceived as scarce? Is nature good for us in ways that we've priced into real estate, but we haven't really talked much about in terms of health? Florence Williams argues that it is. She's a contributing editor at Outside Magazine and author of the new book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. Florence, thanks for your time. Hi, Kara. It's good to be here. So when you think about how prized nature is in urban areas, like this idea of it's being really expensive, right, to live next to a place like Central Park, do you feel like even before the data was in, we've been sort of subconsciously pricing in a kind of intrinsic advantage to nature? I think that's exactly right. You know, it's it's also like that eighth hole on the golf course. Yeah. <laughs> we we know we want to look out at pastures or trees or oceans or some kind of wide open spaces. We know that these make us feel like we can take a deep breath. You know, we they they bring us some peace, some measure of peace in a chaotic world. How do you define nature? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I actually like Oscar Wilde's very generous definition, which is nature is just a place where birds fly around uncooked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, be careful, because that's the subway station in Boston. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's true. But I, I think the point is that it doesn't have to be truly spectacular. You know, it doesn't have to be a wilderness. We can still get a lot of the benefits of nature from hanging out. Uh, you know, in the backyard or even having a big, beautiful tree out our window. Um, as long as we notice that they're there and, and pay a little bit of attention, we can kind of cultivate the awe that we feel in nature. So give me a sense in terms of how nature affects brains, what scientists have found so far and um, sort of where the research is pointing them. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of investigation of kind of how these different landscapes affect our our, our physiology. You know, what measures can you see? Mm. You know, what does our nervous system look like uh, in nature (laughs) as as opposed to in the middle of a city? And the results are pretty interesting. I first went to Japan to do this investigation because I heard that there were scientists there taking measures of people's nervous systems even after just 15 minutes of subjects being in a forest. Uh, You can see changes in their brains and in their bodies. Um, So among the things you see are a a reduction in stress hormones being released from from the brain. So, for example, cortisol levels go down. Blood pressure goes down. And this is nothing else but like taking a walk in the woods, essentially. Right. This is just hanging out in the woods. You know, it's not even an exercise effect, which you might expect to see people feeling better after exercise. And they know this because they also send groups of subjects to kind of walk slowly, stroll around a city, Hmm. uh, a city center, and also to stroll around this forest landscape. Uh, and, and so only in the forest people, <laughs> I'll call them forest people, um, did they see some of these effects. So those also include a change in mood. People reported feeling happier, feeling more vital. And also their negative feelings went down. So feelings mm. of things like frustration or anger, those feelings went down. Do you think that the medical establishment, uh, doctors, are aware of these findings? Because, I mean, so much money is spent on depression medication, blood pressure medication. And if people knew that walking in the forest for 15 minutes or 30 minutes would help your blood pressure go down, I imagine there's lots of both patients and doctors who would be really interested in that information. I have to say, for the most part, I think the medical establishment has no clue. <laughs> I think it, this is not something that's taught in medical school. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's an example of how cut off most of us are from nature, that our doctors really don't experience a lot of nature themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they don't even know, you know that it makes them feel good necessarily. Yeah, but you don't um, have to experience nature to have read a study showing that people walking in the forest have lower blood pressure after 15 minutes than people walking through the concrete jungle. Right. I mean, right? And if all you want to do is just get your patients to be healthier, well, there's maybe an an answer right there. Well, I think what's happened so far is that a lot of these studies are still pretty small. So small levels of subjects. Mm -hmm. um, A lot of the research is being done in other countries. So that's another piece. And I think that you know, we live in such an evidence-based society mm. that for this to really be taught in medical schools, I think we need to reach a whole new level uh, of the research. So we need much larger clinical trials. We need, you know, case control studies. Um, I think we're starting to see some more of this happen, but I think it still has a ways to go. Hmm. Do you see interest from any other parties that might be unexpected? Um, insurance companies obviously have a have a real interest in making Uh, people healthier because then they're cheaper to insure, right, if they don't have really serious chronic problems. Um, Do you think there's, you know, you said, obviously, we've got no pharmaceutical lobbying group for walks in the woods, nobody who necessarily would want to bankroll that study. But could there be interest from uh, groups that we might not expect? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to suggest there are no doctors interested in this. Um, There actually is a parks prescription program underway. It's kind of a partnership uh, with the CDC uh, and a number of doctor offices and hospitals across the country. I think now there are 35 
uh, medical practices that are experimenting with prescribing parks to their patients. So there is a little bit starting to happen. We also do see it in some unexpected places. For example, prisons. Um, There are a couple of pilot projects Mm. underway where nature videos are being piped into the exercise rooms of some prisons out west. And these are being studied. Uh, And what they're finding is that among prisoners who are working out in the rooms with the nature videos compared to working out in rooms with no videos, the inmates are less aggressive, they're calmer, uh, and some of them are requesting to go in there, um, you know, when they're hmm. stressed out. Which is pr- so now the guards are not only you know supporting this idea, but the guards are asking for these nature videos to be played in their break rooms because they need a break from the stress. It's interesting too that the effect of nature ha- changing you know, the way your body functions or the way you feel seems to be true even by video. I mean, you're not talking about people taking walks in the woods here, the actual woods. There are benefits even with a potted plant (laughs) Hmm. in your office. We're seeing some benefits, which is really fascinating Hmm. to me. So a little bit of nature has some benefits, um, but it looks like there's a dose response curve. So the more nature and the more time, the better you feel. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Florence Williams, author of the new book, The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. How, in this, with the scientists that you talk to, how do scientists think that nature is changing how our bodies work and how our brains work? What is the like mechanism by which we feel better outside or our blood pressure goes down or whatever it is? That's a great question. And I would say there's a, a good bit of healthy debate over exactly what's going on. One uh, theory that I like that people talk about a lot is called the attention restoration theory. And basically what it what it suggests is that our frontal cortex, right, that's the frontal part of our brain that's always um, paying attention to tasks that we have to do. It's checking items off our to-do list. It's responding to email. We, we all know that part of our brain because we use it all the time. And, and we don't really give it an, a very much of a break. And so that kind of stresses us out even on a subconscious level when we feel sort of um, grumpy. It's often because the attentional networks in our brain are sort of overworked. I think we can all relate to that feeling. Hmm. Um, and something happens when we go outside, which is that the frontal cortex of our brain seems to quiet down. And you can actually see this on MRI scans. You can see it on some different kinds of EEG scans that now we can take out into the field and you can actually see it happening in real time. And that's because when we're outside in nature, the surroundings are such that our perceptual systems aren't kind of overtaxed. You know, information is coming at us at a kind of slow, natural pace that, frankly, is the pace our brains evolved in, mm-hmm. right? So, oh, there's a bird over there, or there's a bee over here. Oh, a little bit of stress, but oh, but look, there's a sunset, and that makes us feel better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's sort of recovery built in and a slower pace built in. Mm-hmm. And that seems to quiet down the, that frontal lobe, and that experience in itself is enough to kind of cheer us up, you know, on some level. It's a comfortable, happy space. Are there other notable medical effects that you feel like um, are interesting and that maybe warrant more of our attention? In Japan, there's some really interesting studies also looking at people's killer T immune cells. And those studies seem to suggest that after uh, a couple of days of sort of a vacation, for example, uh, near a forest and, and hiking in a forest, that those killer T cells really go up 
and that could be really important for fighting diseases like cancer. So that's one thing. We also see that certain inflammatory cells in our immune system go down. So that's been shown in research uh, actually at the University of California, looking at uh, kids who take a three-day rafting trip, and these are inner city kids. They report a 30% decrease in anxiety, and you can actually see these cytokine cells um, also quieting down. There's some research going on with veterans who have post-traumatic stress, showing that they experience less anxiety, less depression, greater feelings of vitality and social bonding, which we also know is associated with positive feelings, uh, also after time in nature. So obviously we live in a world in which already more than half of people on earth uh, live in cities. Uh, That's only going up. We're going to hit, by some estimates, um, by 2050, uh, two-thirds of people will live in cities. So people are increasingly, as they have been doing for the past hundred years or more, uh, moving into urban areas. Um, Do you worry, like, as we increasingly sort of move on top of each other and build 30-story and 50-story buildings, do you worry that some of the problems that have come with increasing urbanization will be compounded? Yeah, I totally do worry about that. In fact, I was just reading in the paper the other day that a lot of people in Hong Kong are living in these tiny, 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 tiny spaces that they're calling coffin apartments. Oh, my gosh. So you can imagine. Uh, and, and, and you have to just think, boy, that is not a place where your brain is really going to feel comfortable. That resembles nothing, you know, that we have lived in for the last 99.9% mm. of our existence. Um, we also we know that certain mental health problems are a lot worse in urban areas than they are outside of them. Um, schizophrenia, depression, anxiety. So I, I think that urban life takes a toll. And the more that we recognize this, I think the more we can bring to how we design these cities, how we design the spaces, how we make a big effort to provide access for all children to go outside and not just the ones who can afford you know, golf lessons or going to summer camp. Florence Williams is the author of The Nature Fix, Why Nature Makes Us Happier, Healthier, and More Creative. She's also a contributing editor at Outside Magazine. Florence, thank you so much for this. Thank you so much, Kara. It's been fun. If you'd like to learn more about how different people de-stress in nature, visit our website, innovationhub.org. There we've got an article from Florence Williams about a Japanese practice called forest bathing. That's right, forest bathing. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Songer and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. R.I. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com slash CSB1.